Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we help you discover innovative startups in the outdoor sport industry. Join us as we tell the story of brands who are paving the way for the future of outdoor sports. And here's your host, Josh Salvo. Hey, Ready Eddy Podcast listeners. Do you love skiing, snowboarding, climbing, hiking, camping, surfing, kayaking, or mountain biking? Did you know that there are thousands of new outdoor sports startups launching each year with incredible stories and products that are revolutionizing their sports? At Ready Yeti, we are a community of outdoor sport enthusiasts that love discovering new brands and supporting the ones that make innovative, quality products and that have a drive to give back. At ReadyEddy.com, we give away products every two weeks from your soon-to-be favorite outdoor sports startups. Check out ReadyEddy.com and become a part of our daily growing outdoor sports community and be among the first to discover tomorrow's outdoor sport brands. Before we get started, I wanted to make a quick shout out to SBC Skier, who we'll be partnering with during our Deviation and Anitia Bag giveaway. SBC Skier has shown us a ton of support in helping build awareness for startups like Anitia and Deviation. If you want to support sites that help us at Ready Yeti make all of this happen, then definitely check out sbcskier.com. What is going on, Ready Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Savo here, your host. I'm sitting down here with Matt Hilbert, the co-founder of Deviation Skis and Snowboard Works. They're based out of or- Portland, Oregon, and they make handmade skis. Uh, they offer a wide variety of models, and they're pretty dope. They do some pretty interesting things. And in this interview, I'm super excited to be able to sit down with Matt and really get into it. So, Matt, thanks uh, for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So, yeah. So, right off the bat, for the listener who may have never heard of Deviation Ski and Snowboard Works, who are you guys and how are you different than um, other ski and snowboard uh, manufacturers? Sure. Absolutely. Um so what we are is a manufacturer first and foremost. So one of the things that we focus on is that we're not just designing and buying this product to be made overseas or in Europe or wherever, and then we're just marketing and selling that product that we may have designed but have little knowledge about how it's made. Um, so first and foremost, we are a manufacturer. We have our own uh, manufacturing facility and factory in Portland, Oregon. We do pretty much all of our sourcing locally here uh, for materials um, as much as we can. And then we build almost everything we make to order. So from a fundamental standpoint, we're very different than the current model that people are used to where retailers place their orders sometimes as much as a year in advance. It's made in China or or Europe and then makes its way to your retailer sometime in the middle of the summer. They unbox it and put it on the shelf and you have your your new product. Um, From our standpoint, we build for specific customers is most of our sales. So meaning you as an individual go to one of our retailers, you might look at some product they have on the shelf there, but if that doesn't fit your fancy, you'll actually spec out and order that custom product directly through them or directly from us, and we build it in a relatively short period of time because we're local and ship that personalized piece of, of equipment to the customer that's made just for them, and we even put their name on it, 
just so you know that it was actually made only for you. That that's that's really fascinating. I don't think I know of another brand that's doing it quite like that. Um, and I have so many questions to follow up to that. So, like, sure, with the ski shops, do you how do you train their personnel to sort of, um, I guess, ask the appropriate questions and go through and actually f- so you can figure out exactly what it is that you're building. So it, it's definitely you know it's not uh, a simple thing. You're you're absolutely correct. You know it's it's been. We view it as almost like training for uh, for our our sale our own internal sales team. Um, so when we bring on a retailer, we'll have a couple meetings with their um, with their employees about how do you talk about deviation. And as you might imagine, a lot of retailers have concerns with any of these small boutique brands like ourselves that they're being just a showroom for that brand, and then those customers are going to go and order online. Right, And one of the ways that we try to work out a symbiotic relationship with our retailer is specifically that if we have a retailer in your neighborhood type of scenario, we will ship to our retailer your custom product and the order will go through that local retailer. Okay. So um, it's a funny correlation, but I always try to explain it to people that if they've ever heard of TireRack.com for for tires on your car, it's a similar kind of model where you buy your tires from Tire Rack, but they have installers everywhere all over the, you know, all over the U.S. You, your tires are shipped to the installer where they've already negotiated a discounted install rate for you. And you go bring your car in and they put your tires on and there you go. And you're afforded a selection that that brick and mortar store could never keep in stock and everybody wins. Right. That's really interesting. So how did, how did you come up with this idea? <laughs> so from a retail model standpoint, we we did a lot of research before starting the company. And essentially what we saw is that the big, big, big brands out there um, that everybody's heard of, right? They're basically, their strategy is to almost flood the market so that a little organization such as ours could never compete. Right. And one of the ways you do that is by pouring all your resources into trying to get as much bulk and volume as possible um, from your from your retailers, even if it means selling at a very, very low price. Right. And that's why you have this scenario where there's one model every year and it's a, here's your model and I hope you like it. You can choose it in any color you want as long as it's black, you know, type, type of scenario. Right. Uh, because the lead times are huge, you know. They're, these manufacturers, when they go over to China, they're, they're placing their orders on your behalf, essentially, for a design that they've created, but somebody else is going to make. And that all takes time. You're looking at four to six months to have that product made from when they actually put in their order to when it actually is received at the retailer. We do it in four to six weeks. That's crazy. (laughs) So you can imagine it's just a paradigm shift and you know, I'm all for made in America, but it's also central to our strategy. We know that if we compete on this kind of a level that those guys, it would be such a paradigm shift for them 
then it wouldn't be easy for them to just copy what we're doing. Right, right. That's so it was, it, was, it was two components. It's both, you know, we, we, we saw the world going more and more towards an uh, individualistic point of view when it comes to what people buy, um, you know, and everything from your iPhone to your computer, right? Whether it's getting a case for it that personalizes it or, or buying it in different colors, you know, everyone is starting to believe that I shouldn't just have the same thing as my four friends. Like I want some uniqueness to it. And that's kind of, we, we focused in on, um, from a, from a, competitive standpoint what we wanted to be about was not just making a carbon copy 600 times and getting convincing 600 people to to buy it in in my view that's how a lot of the small brands have failed because rather than try to change the game they've tried to mimic what the large brands are doing rather than doing something different right 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 so how many shops are, are you working with with specifically Oregon-based shops, or do you have other ones outside of the area? Like, I, I don't know in terms sure. of scale. How, do, how does that work? We, we have about five retailers. Okay. Um, we have, and it's an eclectic group. We have uh, a retailer in northern Norway above the Arctic Circle. Oh, wow. And we have, as the forest flung, and then the vast majority of them are basically Oregon, Idaho, Washington. Okay. Right. That's really interesting. So how did you, what's your background? How did you get into building skis and snowboards? Sure. Absolutely. So my background is material science, actually. So I had done some work, um, as a, as an engineer in composites, um, in a formal composites lab at a university working with Bell helicopter. And I won't bore you with the the technical hoopla, but (laughs) Essentially, I was, you know, a, a trained monkey that ran, uh, ran samples and, and produced data for these, you know, aerospace companies who were trying to prove that when they move from, you know, a titanium or aluminum structure to a composite structure, that their airplane or helicopter isn't going to fall apart midair and kill everyone that's in it. Right. <laughs> um, so you would be amazed at the amount of fatigue testing and standards and, and different methods that are used to prove that out. And that's what most of my background is in. Um, and I was always very intrigued by composite structures. You know, the, the amazing thing about composite structures is you can take two totally different materials, you know, and, and one might be great because it's flexible and the other one might be great because it's super stiff and you can combine them together and get something that has the attributes of both. Um, and every ski, you know, people fixate on carbon fiber as a composite. Well, guess what? So is fiberglass. So is like every thing that's made with epoxy is basically a composite. So composites are not new is what I'm trying to tell you. Right. What's new is the new things, the new materials people are using in composites to, to come up with really great, you know, innovation and that materials improvement is what really drives a lot of the innovation in the industry. That's really interesting. So how did you develop your product and sort of get it to the point that it's at now? And I know one of the, one of the big, um, 
points that you that you guys like to make is the fact that you use a material called Purple Heart. Um, so could you could sort of walk us through this the process of like when you that first pair that you built to where you guys are now? Absolutely. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to tell you it was all perfectly laid out and everything <laughs> went planned. But that just, uh, if anybody ever tells you that, they're probably lying. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, in 2012, we started the company here. We were fortunate enough to have met up with an individual um, who's now our production manager, uh, Jeremy Pazneys. And he had a long history of knowledge in the industry. He had started at at Burton back when Burton actually made things in Vermont um, and had moved, had progressed along and worked at some other boutique um, ski companies. So he really knew a lot about how to make skis and snowboards from a fundamental standpoint. And we were lucky enough to kind of work with him from day one to avoid a lot of the iterations and, and complications people have, you know, when they grow this out of their garage you know, he, he could really guide us in a lot of different ways so that we weren't, you know, making 15 pairs of skis before we had one that was actually rideable, if you, if you understand what I mean. Right, yeah. Um, so that was kind of, uh, you know, point one. Uh, from there, we basically came up with a bunch of different prototypes and went out and rode them. And, you know, it was all over the map. Some of them, it was like, you know, you struck gold on the first iteration and, you know, it was like, oh, that's awesome, you know, and everybody loves it. And one of our most popular skis, the mode, was mm-hmm. basically that kind of a situation. It was the first ski that we developed and and it was, uh, you know, it was almost, I, I think we might have completed one iteration on it. Other skis have been iterated on three, four, five times in in major significant ways um and fundamentally changed along uh, you know along the road um but all of our decisions are always driven by a prototype and test um standpoint we don't ever release anything to the public until we've basically wrote it as the employees here at the at, at the shop and then our athletes and ambassadors and then only then when everybody has gotten positive reviews on that do we go out and put it you know as another a new shape or model uh, available that's really interesting so did you i assume you grew up skiing you i know you're originally from upstate new york right right yeah i do not remember learning how to ski my <laughs> i will thank my mother that she had me out on skis when i could probably barely walk um and we you know it it was the company was fundamentally founded with a few exceptions on a bunch of friends from you know from that from my upbringing in Ithaca New York um and you know we we like to say that you know we we roughed it in night skiing in upstate New York and negative 35 type temperatures (laughs) um you know but we from that standpoint we've definitely taken that experience and we use it when it comes to designing things you know it's it's fantastic that some of these skis you know as an example designed in utah ski great in utah okay so how is that going to ski in not so perfect conditions somewhere else um 
And we're lucky in our location here that we can essentially test year round on Mount Hood, um, which is one of the reasons we chose this location. And secondarily, that Mount Hood has such a huge variation in conditions and terrain that you can basically put it through, you know, a ski through any kind of scenario that someone might actually see. Um, you know, everything from just wind crust, you know, solid ice to 15 foot powder days occurs at, on Mount Hood, particularly, you know, with the, with the elevation on Mount Hood, you, you can basically ski all of those in the same day. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I definitely know what you mean. That's really interesting. So how, how long have you been in Oregon for? So I've been in Oregon for about uh, seven years now. Um, uh, so I, I was here the longest before we started the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I've only been in Portland now uh, for a few years. But previously, I, I was uh, living in Eugene, where the University of Oregon is. Okay, interesting. I'm trying to convince myself to move out there <laughs> next year, either there or, or uh, the Seattle area. Um, so I'll we like to tell people it's awful here. Here, never come. <laughs> it rains a lot. It's terrible. It gets yeah, depressing. it's terrible. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's all. It's all. Uh, I, I I frequently tell my friends back east that that's all uh, fictitious. Uh, the reality is, is that it rains in the valley, and then you drive 35 minutes, and you're in a winter wonderland. Yeah, and it's really incredible. That's awesome. So, tell us something that's unique about you, one of your products or, or, or deviation, and how how does it truly? I mean, we've covered sort of a few things that are different, but is there anything that's maybe less obvious to um, someone who stumbles sure. upon deviation online, um, or just you in general? <laughs> One of the things that we like to point out to customers, because it's not obvious, is our wood cores. So you touched on the fact that we use this Purple Heart wood. Um, it's not so much, I mean, it's, yes, Purple Heart is a special wood, but it's not so much that simply that we use Purple Heart. What's really different is how we construct our cores and then how that wood is brought out to the sidewall. And what's significant there is that there's a perception when you're skiing or snowboarding that the ski or snowboard that you're on is more stable because it's not chattering. Right. Now, as you imagine, there's a few different ways to reduce that chatter. And, you know, different manufacturers have taken different approaches. But for me, it boils down to not so much that you want to ride an I-beam hey, this thing doesn't chatter because it's literally, <laughs> you know, like a plank of wood and right. it, you can't, couldn't move it if you, you know, tried. You know, that's not how I think of the experience that customers want. I think of it more as in a perfect world and from a materials problem standpoint, this is very difficult to accomplish. You want your tip and tail not to flex at all, both torsionally and radially, And meanwhile, you want your underfoot to rebound and give and give energy to the ski. So if you think about that from a material, strictly an engineering problem statement, it's really hard to make something that does that. 
oh, I want these parts to be perfectly stable, and then I want this part in the middle to be like a bow and arrow. Right. Um, you know, and that's that's the age-old question, in my opinion, when it comes to ski design and snowboard design, is that everybody is trying to hone in on that in different ways and come up with different technologies to try to adjust, address that without making the ski so heavy that you can't use it. Right. And, you know, this is why... Some people, when they first ride like a super light, you know, touring ski, they're like, this thing skis horribly, <laughs> you know, and, and it's all perception. And right. it, the, that perception is driven by the fact that it's so light that there's no mass to the ski. So it's chattering all over the place. They can't control it because mm -hmm. they rely on that mass to actually stabilize their skis when they're skiing. Um, so from our standpoint, we approach that very differently. Other folks have thrown metal into skis, made it as stiff as possible, and there's a whole bunch of you know, marketing hoopla behind doing that. The problem with that is, is that the stiffer you make the ski, the more energy is transmitted into your body. Mm -hmm. And you feel that, right? Okay. You know, if you yeah. if you take like a you know, a World Cup GS ski down down a slope, right? You get to the bottom, and you're like, oh, my God, you know, I just got my butt kicked. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know that you, feeling. You know, and, yeah, did it handle great? Oh, yeah, it handles great, but holy cow, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it takes so much more energy, and that's because everything that that ski is experiencing is transmitted directly into your legs, and you have to cushion all that energy and dissipate all that energy. We took a different approach. We wanted the ski to do all that hard work for you. Yet we still wanted it to carve well. We still wanted it to rebound um, and do all those things that you want out of a dynamic, energetic ski. Um, so we accomplished that through our course. And what we did was we took that special purple heart, purple heart wood that's very stiff, very damp, and we vary the width of it in the core as a percentage of the core, how much of it is in the core between your tip and your tail and your waist. So okay. under your foot, you have a very little amount of that super dense, super damp purple heart, and it's basically just a, you know the width of a normal sidewall. Right. Then as you head out towards your tip and your tail, you have almost 50% of the core being that purple heart. Um, and basically you have the effect of a natural dampening system where underfoot, you're basically skiing on, on poplar, um, in the case of our snowboards and poplar and ash in the case of our, our skis and both woods are, are, you know, poplar is poppy and ash is nice and stiff and a good spine to ski on. And you're getting that rebound underfoot while your tip and tail are staying nice and stable and torsionally, torsionally rigid. That's really interesting. So how did, how did you come across purple heart? Actually, we used a different wood called Black Locust ori originally, and that wood came to us kind of through, you know, a couple different iterations, and it was something that really we were mostly concerned with, a wood that wouldn't rot in water, because most wood rots in water. Right. And Black Locust is essentially like a, a swamp wood. Um, the problem with Black Locust is the grain is super inconsistent, and so... From a workability standpoint, it had all sorts of issues where, you know, you're finishing a ski and you'd hit a knot and half the ski would shoot out. <laughs> uh, yeah. And 
it didn't it wasn't the prettiest wood either um so there was a bunch of good qualities of black locust but there was also some drawbacks to it as well and luckily we live in a you know a city where there is tremendous knowledge of woods and our local supplier simply said oh try these couple of woods and one of them was purple heart and we kind of fell in love with it it has a a, a gorgeous purple hue to it it emits it, you know the this natural oil that protects the wood from water um the grain is significantly more consistent it's commercially grown you see it used in a lot of surfboards um a lot of uh musical instruments um so it's available that was one of the problems with black locust is like it's literally a weed black locust you know so you basically had to hope that somebody was cutting down a black locust tree on their property to get rid of it oh, was yeah. to get it um so from a sustainability standpoint that was great but from a sourcing standpoint it was like the more we produced the more that became a problem um because we <laughs> As an example, we basically bought out all the black locusts in the Northwest our first two years. And so you'd call people up and they'd be like, no, I haven't gotten any. Like, nobody buys this stuff. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's um, interesting. So, you know, you get into things like that. So Purple Heart really was a much better solution. And, you know, we've had, you know, good, good uh, feedback from customers on, you know, not just the cosmetics, but the performance as well. Um, and it's it's been a lot better for us to work with from a from a you know consistency standpoint in the material as well that's really interesting so where in the world is purple heart from it's basically from latin america okay um it's pretty commonly commercially grown um it, but it is a more exotic hardwood for sure um there's a couple other woods that are kind of in the same uh, family, but it's it's one of it's one of the commonly used hardwoods in that family that have this purple hue. That's really interesting. So th this leads me into um, my next question of sustainability and how how does that work um, in the manufacturing, especially with using a wood like Purple Heart. What it, what are you, what is your commitment to sustainable manufacturing with, through the whole process? Well, wherever possible, we try to source as locally as possible as we can. So essentially, the Purple Heart and our top sheet material are pretty much the only things that don't come from the U.S. Um, everything else is, is U.S.-based sourced. Um, and, you know, we've actually begun to experiment uh, with a bunch of other materials um, for top sheet material, as an example, to, to continue to try to bring, bring more and more, uh, into the U S as possible. Um, separately from that, uh, you know, we, we've begun to look at, as we make larger purchases of wood, um, you can start to get into the certified sourcing and, and things like this. Um, you know, where we are right now, we're not buying enough wood to, to justify any, any major supplier kind of providing that specialty for us. So right. we buy it locally from experts who import, you know, wood in a sustainable fashion. Um, and we're kind of moving towards trying to secure, you know, suppliers and things like that as, as our volume grows. That's interesting. So throughout this entire journey, 
have you had any mentors that have really helped you get through this entire process, whether it's on the manufacturing aspect or the business aspect of building deviation? Yeah, um, you know, we, we do have an advisory board and we have some folks on there from the retail side of things. Uh, we have a great advisor on there who was employee number, I think, 11 at Nike. Okay. Um, and she really helped us hone in on the personalization aspect of our, our business plan. Um, and through her, we've been involved with the University of Oregon's sports marketing master's program. And we're kind of a regular spot for an intern uh, internship through their program every year. And that program is really unique in the world that, you know, and, and for most of your East coast people, they might not realize this, but Portland, Oregon is kind of the shoe capital of the world. Um, it's where Keen is based. It's where Adidas USA is based. It's where Under Armour shoe division is based. It's where Nike was started. Um, it's also where Columbia sports is Rocky Mountain, uh, uh, Mountain Hardware is based. Um, you know, there's a, a tremendous number of outdoor brands that call Portland home. Right. Um, and through her, we've connected to that whole industry group, and that's really helped us in a lot of ways. Um, but then secondarily, you know, as, of course, as the individual um, who I already mentioned before, Paz, our production manager, um, who had industry knowledge, you know, and helped us set up our facility and, and is now our, our production manager. That's really interesting. It, it goes to show that being in an area where you can surround yourself with people who are in the industry that you want to be in and have just want or want to be, it's, it, it's so much so valuable. It can really help you get rolling and face it helps you so you don't have to face problems alone. And having some, having a board like that, it's probably tremendously helpful. Um, what, Absolutely. What kind of culture would you say exists within deviation? I know. I, I think you said uh, before we we hopped on uh, that there's there's five or six of you on the team currently. Right. So what what does the day in the life of deviation look like? Well, I'd love to tell you it's super organized, but. Uh, <laughs> As, as I'm looking at the ice storm we just had in Portland here that literally shut down the city, um, it becomes pretty hectic at times. Uh, some of our employees uh, are based on the East Coast still, our accountant, um, my mom, as an example. <laughs> and, um, you know, some of, some of our employees, such as our sales manager, are based up in Washington State, and it's, uh, it's you know, a two-hour trek to come in, so he's not here today. Um so it, it's a challenge. We're, we're kind of more like a family. It's not like we sit here and have, you know, conference calls and meetings. Um, you know, we, we rely a lot on people to be contributors and, and to do what's right uh, on their own without direct oversight. Um, that's not an easy thing. You know, what, what I've really learned in having that kind of a culture is you really need to have the right kind of people. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, as we mentioned, you know, earlier, uh, in previous conversations, you know, this is not my full time job. So the people who are working full time, 
you know, I can't babysit everyone. Like they need to know what they're doing and do it well. And that's probably the biggest thing that we've changed in starting uh, the organization is getting the right people in the right roles and having those people have real applicable knowledge and experience has really changed the company for the better in the last two years. That's really interesting. So what do you do on, um, outside of deviation um, for work and how do you balance the two? Well, it's not easy, but luckily I'm a sales manager outside of uh, deviation. So I travel a lot and I'm on the road and, you know, I can do work at nights and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's convenient that I can work on our website or our CAD or a lot of the things that I'm responsible for, um, from anywhere. (laughs) Uh, so it's pretty darn convenient and, in that way that I'm able to do that. Um, but you know, I have to rely on the team here and there's a lot of individuals here who really make everything, you know, go every day. Uh, and we're getting, you know, better and better systems in place to help facilitate that. Uh, and we continue to kind of, you know, upgrade our team and and grow our team. And that helps as well. That's, that's so I totally empathize with you <laughs> having the uh, day job and the side gig or passion business. It's it's a hard thing to manage both of them. So right. I, I guess what my question is is in how in do you see yourself in the in the relative soon future transitioning full time to deviation? I mean that's certainly the goal, of right. course. Of course, um, I. I happen to live in a somewhat serial entrepreneurial family. And uh, my wife also has her own company and my mother also has her own company. Um, so it's not easy. There's a lot of uh, balls in the air, so to speak. Um, but, you know, we're, we're at a phase now where my wife's company is certainly ahead of deviation from a stability standpoint. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hope that I, I I can have the uh, the more passion project in the near near future, and and we can we can you know have that balance. Uh, but right now, for the foreseeable future, it's definitely you know we're still making significant investments every day in what we're doing at Deviation to grow the business and improve what we're doing. And as long as we're we're doing that, it's going to be probably a pretty big challenge for for me to totally come on full time. Of course, of course, doing that is. It, it, while it's probably the best feeling in the world, it's a def, it's a, such a hard thing to do. Yeah. It's so, especially for you. I know you have, you have a family to support in addition right. to it. So it's like you, there's so many responsibilities, and now that you have people working for you, you got you have to take care of them too. So it's it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it, it is, and and it's definitely a challenge, and you know, but it really is great, and it's super rewarding, and you know where. Where in my day job, it's like, oh, great, I got that order. It, and if it, not, not to downplay it, that that feels good, but when we get a big order for deviation, it feels a hell of a lot sweeter. Oh, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. It's where your heart is. Right, right, exactly. So, uh, yeah. What, what would you say has been the hardest part about starting and building deviation? Y- you know, 
I think we, when we started, I think the general consensus was that doing our own manufacturing wouldn't be as difficult as it actually was. Right. Um, and it seems like a very simple statement to say, like, <laughs> oh, we'll just figure this one process out, right. you know, or improve this one process. But there's a lot of work that goes into each one of those improvements. And, you know, if I look at the product that we were first making compared to what we make today, it's like incredibly, you know, it's, it's, it's like, wow, <laughs> it's really a lot different. Yeah, um, I bet. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a learning process for sure. And I think we were all a little young and naive on taking that manufacturing side, um, on and how it would be a slam dunk. And it's only as we've really brought in super knowledgeable people um, on the manufacturing side to really run the manufacturing side that that's gotten significantly smoother. Without a doubt. When the, the couple years that I spent building skis um, with my co-founder of Ready Yeti back in college, um, we put mm -hmm. like a, an easy constructo building, like a 250 square foot building in his parents' backyard <laughs> and like put together our own shop, made our own ski press and, um, you know, found a bunch of, uh, secondhand, um, equipment, like an industrial planer and all that other stuff. But I, I could sure. never imagine doing it on, on a large scale. I could never, ever imagine. Well, and that was kind of, you know, where we started, you know, we were in a pretty small, I mean, our factory is now double the size that it was when we started. And we have like, 30% fewer employees than when we started. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to me that you kind of, you think that manpower is your real, you know, issue, uh, when you start, but you know, as it turns out, it really had a lot more to do with having the right people than having the right equipment. Um, so, and, ma and making smart investments, you know, there were, there, there were key investments we made in the last couple of years that really have a huge impact on the quality of what we make and the, and the repeatability of our process. Um, a lot of people don't realize that even big manufacturers scrap an enormous amount of material that you never see because something comes out and you're like, oh, that's junk, you know? Right, right, right. And I, I'm sure you can appreciate that having tried to make your own stuff, you know, that that when you're having problems with your process, it's like all of a sudden you might make the same product six times before it comes out right, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so just just from 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 that kind of a repeatability to our process when we started to where we are now, where if it's like if we have to rebuild something once in a month, we're like, what happened? Um, it's right. just nice. That's good. That's really good. Yeah, the first pair I ever built, I, we epoxied to our ski press, <laughs> which really sucked. <laughs> nice. Yeah. One of Sorry, my, I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I forgot to add parchment paper in between <laughs> the bottom. Oh, it was a, I was so excited. I let it cure for like eight hours, came down, and like was super excited to like rip it out of the press and go to rip it, and it just like doesn't move, and I'm like, 
shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> hmm. Uh, had this uh, happen? You could have missed something in yeah. this process. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of moments like that through through our journey. Yeah. Uh, Without a uh, doubt. So, another aspect I, I feel of, of deviation that's also unique is the uh, the graphics. Um, sure. I know you guys partner with a lot of local artists for many of the product, uh, many of the the models that you do offer, and then you also offer the ability for people to upload their own graphics. Is that is that correct? Correct, correct. And um, what's I think is particularly unique about that program is not so much that you can have a custom graphic. I mean, there are, there are other companies doing that. It's, it's not like we invented the light bulb or anything. Um, but what's different about our gallery is, is, is how we reward our artists. So the artists in our artist gallery all individually are paid commission every time someone selects their art. Okay. So, the reality is in, in, in snow sports, almost no artist is paid for their artwork. It's, you know, you should give us your artwork because it's going to be on skis and you should be psyched about that and just give it to us. Right. And if there is a payment, it's like fairly minute and it's like, okay, now we have the rights to do whatever we want with it. Um, so we have a unique system where, you know, the, the artist's artwork is, you know, available for our customers to choose. There's no additional fee to the customer to choose that artwork, yet that artist will actually earn $50 every time somebody chooses their artwork, which is very significant, you know, for on a per-unit basis. So we're giving a lot of credit to those artists and the hard work that they did coming up with that graphic. In addition to that, we, of course, display and promote those artists and their individual websites or whatever um, they want to promote on our website. And then we work with customers, um, and I think this is particularly neat, so that customers can commission artwork from any of our artists. Okay. And we have a lot of customers who are like, I really like you know this artist's artwork, but I want something unique for me. And we connect those, those two individuals and it's really incredible what they come up with. Um, and then that customer has artwork, you know, frequently they will buy both the actual original art and they'll get their ski or snowboard with that artwork on it. Oh, that's so interesting. That's really, that's, I think that's such a cool aspect of it that I feel like gets so overlooked. And so many people do buy, like they, they say they don't, but I know I know they do. So many people will buy a ski because of the graphic <laughs> well right i mean there's a lot of good skis out there as an example and so if you're looking at the best thing that that brand a makes and the best thing that brand b makes in a 106 underfoot all mountain ski there's a lot of good choices you know they're not bad choices right and so a lot of times it does boil down to like these skis are both very similar and i like how both of them ride but this one has some crazy Asian Buddha on it and the other one you know has some pornography and I guess I'll go with brand C because it's black <laughs> <laughs> yeah you yeah. know um, so true so we uh, just to, to give you a little story behind that 
when we were first envisioning the company, we all had the same story where we could all think of a time where we were looking at the product rack in a store and we didn't buy a product because of the graphic. Not so much that we bought the product because of the graphic, but there were products that we didn't buy because we were just like, oh my lord, that thing is hideous. Yeah, yeah, I, I've done that so many times. <laughs> right, and, and everybody that we talked to was like, yep, I totally, there were, I can think of three instances where like I rode this thing and I loved it, but God, it was so ugly that I didn't buy it. <laughs> we all said like one of our goals was to never have a customer say that about us. Yeah. You know, and so from day one, one of our objectives was, you know, to set up our production to facilitate the fact that a customer could get any artwork on any product that we make and that we could do that without charging some massive premium, right. you know, so that the regular person could do this and it really changed the expectation from getting, Hey, I bought this board and so did my friend and so did he and so did he. And, and when we put them on the rack, the only way I can tell the difference is our bindings. Yeah, it's so true. Or, or who has a core shot and doesn't. Right, right. <laughs> There's a, there's a, I suppose a few unique identifiers, but <laughs> you know you know exactly what I mean. And everybody's had that scenario too, where you know they've picked up skis and then like gotten two feet away and been like, wait a minute, these aren't mine. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, that's so interesting, and and I think it's definitely something like you have so many aspects that that differentiate you from from all the other brands. I, I think it's. Um, it's 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 inspiring a and just also proves the fact that in 2017 there are still things that you can be doing differently even though there are a ton of ski companies out there snowboard companies because like we've been talking mostly about skiing in this in this episode but you guys also offer a full line of snowboards and anyone who wants to go on there can do the same thing for for a snowboard so i just think that's that's such a high value i mean a perfect example of of you know, for us, you know, it's not about dictating, hey, like, I think these graphics look good, and so the whole world should buy my graphic. Right. Um, same as it goes with skis and snowboards. Just because I gravitate more towards skiing doesn't mean that we shouldn't make snowboards, you know? And we have a mixed group here. You know, our production manager is absolutely a snowboarder. I'm absolutely a skier. Um, <laughs> And uh, just so happens to be that we make all the snowboarders make everything. Um, no. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we came up with the name for a reason. I mean, deviation, you know, if you look up the definition, we're, we're trying to be different. Right. And there, there's a reason why we chose that name because we we do strongly feel like just because this is just because the industry does it this way doesn't mean we should do it that way right. and wherever possible we try to use real data to drive our decisions um but first and foremost we try not to do things just because that's how people do it um we try to have a good reason for for each of those important decisions we make no i think that's 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 a good and wise way to go about building your business. What, what would you say has been one of your greatest fears and 
how do you manage it in regards to deviation? Uh, running out of money. <laughs> yep, that's I feel is most most people's. Are, are um, you, you guys self funded or did you raise capital? We are self funded. Um, we have a group of investors, but it's pretty much friends and family. Uh, and you know it's not the kind of business where you look good on a balance sheet and where you trot into some venture capital fund and go look at me I'm going to make you a billion dollars um, so we knew from day one that it wasn't going to be that kind of scenario either um, but we felt strongly in our strategy that you know there's success and that there's uh, market there for what we wanted to do. Um, we have no illusions that we're going to be like the next Google or something like that. And I mean, that's just, you know, not, um, it's not our, our goal. Our, our goal is to have a sustainable, healthy business, but not to be, you know, the, the next, you know, Apple of phones or anything like that. Right, right. No, I think that that's that's a good point, and so many people sort of forget that when you build a business, it doesn't have to be the next Google. It can be so, it, more of a lifestyle business that feeds your beliefs and your and what you want to do, and create that sense of community, which I feel you guys are definitely working towards and have already. Um, yeah, and there's there's big brands that that are out there. You know, Patagonia is one of them that comes to course, mind. That, yeah you know, that started in that manner and like, yeah, they're huge, but you know, at the same time, they're not, you know, they're, they're not sitting there going like, okay, so now all the mountain enthusiasts like us. So uh, how do we sell to the surfers? You know, that, right, that is, right. I don't think that's a conversation that's happening at Patagonia right now. Um, you know, and, and, and there's, and from my experience with publicly traded companies, like I would say one of my goals is that if I'm going to continue to work at deviation, like we're probably going to always avoid ever being a publicly traded company. Right. So I think there's far too much negatives that goes along with, you know, making that kind of a, a jump. Um, you know, we, we hope and really strive to have a healthy business that's self-sustaining um, that, you know, not only is growing, but is, you know, cash positive and, and it, we're not worrying about running out of money every year type of type of scenario. And then we want to keep investing in that and keep growing in it and and see where it goes. Without a doubt. So what advice would you give to someone that wanted to start a business in the outdoor sport world or just a business in general? I, you know, I would say first and foremost that you know, really be mindful of who you start that business with. Um, I mean, just to illustrate my point, you know, we're, we're a team of, you know, four or five now. And, you know, we started with a team of eight. And we do three times as much now than we did with eight. Right. And that was all about the pieces in that puzzle you know, and not that people weren't working hard or anything like that, but there's a huge difference depending on who you're working with. And to be honest, I think 
because I had come from like a more corporate background where people had tons and tons of experience and, and, you know, lots of, of education surrounding their position. And they were very good at their, their individual positions and responsibilities. I think I, I originally assumed far too much that like, Oh, we'll just stick this person in here and, and they'll be able to, to do this critical thing, you know, having no experience and no knowledge on that subject, they'll just figure it out. And, right. you know, and that, that was not, you know, if you're starting a business, like that is not the way to start the business. And, you know, we, we've learned a lot from there. Um, but to borrow on my, my wife's startup, they started their startup out of the U of O's business school. And everybody in their startup has an MBA and, you know, had a lot of direct knowledge about what they were responsible for in their startup. And it's a dramatic difference, you know, deviations closer to their structure now than it was when we started uh, as just uh, a comparison. Um, but it's really incredible how different, um, the progress is made because they had that team from day one, whereas deviation basically has had to kind of grow and restructure. Right, right. I think that's that's such good advice, and it's it's a, such a hard thing, especially when in the beginning when you're starting the business and you're not really sure exactly what it is yet, and mm-hmm. maybe it's your idea and you need someone to be your partner. You need a partner because you know you just can't handle all of the tasks, so you. Yeah, and you don't know what you're looking for. So it's definitely something that, like you're saying, take your time, figure out, and understand exactly what it is that you're that the company needs and make sure that you're not just sort of, okay, we'll just, I'm very close with this person, so maybe we'll just be partners. Yeah, and that's exactly, you know, the, that's, that's to your exact point. It's like, you know, everybody who started the company was really close prior to starting the company. That wasn't maybe the most important attribute we should have been focused on right we right. should have been focused on what is this person contributing not just like oh this is my buddy exactly you know? exactly so where do you see deviation going in the next year five years and ten years down the road uh in the next year we really hope to get to a more like critical mass of retailers where Maybe it's not that you've got a retailer down the street from you, but there's at least a retailer in your state, you know, type of type of scenario. Um, and from there, you know, five years out, it's it's more about international growth past there. Right, right. That's good. That's that's exciting. I um, I'm definitely excited to see what you guys do in the future and. Um, with that, I uh, for anyone who's listening, you can head over to readyeddy.com to enter to win a pair of deviation skis or snowboard along with an Aniche backcountry pack. Uh, if you're listening to this between January 10th and the 24th of 2017. And um, with that, Matt, where can, uh, where can people learn more about you and deviation? You can uh, you can follow our social media um, on most outlets. We're under the the moniker Deviation Works, um, or you can go to our website, which is deviationusa.com. 
Awesome. Well, with that, Matt, I, I appreciate you taking the time. It was a blast getting to uh, hear more about Deviation, how you guys started, and where you guys are going. So uh, thanks again. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Hey, Ready Any Podcast listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, then I would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Eddie Podcast. I'll catch you next week.